to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching Spectre. A cryptic message from James Bond's past sends him on a trail to uncover the existence of a sinister organization named Spectre. With a new threat dawning, Bond learns the terrible truth about the author of all his pain in his most recent missions. Yes, we did it. We finally made it to Bond 24. This live a podcast can end because we've seen this movie already. Except, did we? Okay, I yeah, I had seen this. I had seen it. I rem- <laughs> when I watched it again, I remembered more than I than I thought I had. Everybody who saw this movie at the time seems to have completely forgotten it. Fair, <laughs> but yes, it's it's our it's our last bond. And we have a guest. Who's our guest? Our guest is none other than Kent Blue of Role to Play. Kent, welcome to the show. Hello, I am glad to be here. Thank you so much for talking Bond. <laughs> so I'm going to say this right now before I introduce more of myself because it's relevant now. Um, <laughs> okay. So whenever you've reached out to me about this movie, I said, I'm pretty sure I've seen it. And I said, there's a helicopter scene. Uh, it turns out that's all I've seen of this movie because <laughs> the more and more <laughs> it went on, I have notes going on. I was like, I don't think I've actually seen this movie. No, I've definitely not seen this movie. <laughs> well, to be fair. In every James Bond film, there is a helicopter scene. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That is a trademark of the franchise. Yeah, it's a requirement. There has to be a a helicopter scene. It might just be a helicopter flies by, but there will be a helicopter somewhere in the movie. (laughs) So you had actually never seen this until you sat down to watch it for this. I had seen the beginning helicopter part. Like I vividly remember that because I had the same thoughts this time around that I had then, which were Uh like... I don't think punching the pilot is your best strategy here. <laughs> That's awesome. Yay, so you're coming to it fresh. I love it. Yes, fresh minus like 10 minutes. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> that's, that's totally fair. So, okay, so prior to this, what is your experience with Bond films? I mean, I wouldn't say, I've, I've seen all of the Daniel Craig ones. Uh, so Casino Royale and on to, pre- to this one. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I had seen some of the Brosnan ones. I'm sure as a kid, I'd probably seen some of the older ones, but nothing mm-hmm. I can remember. So very little, very little. Okay. No, that's cool. So maybe your first, your first bond was probably Brosnan. Probably. Yeah. Awesome. And how do you feel that Craig, like Craig versus Brosnan? How do you feel? So uh, I think, I mean, I do like Craig, just, I guess I like the, grittier nature of these like i, I mean I, I really like casino royale and how gritty that one is and just you know i think i like that about it i mean even even the browser ones were a little more um which is i'm going to say this without a great frame of reference as campy as maybe as some of the earlier ones but i feel like they still held some camp to them that's fair some of those movies are redonkulous uh- <laughs> The one-liners for sure held on to the true campiness of the Roger Moore films. Edifice Complex. Edifice Complex. Edifice Complex. Yes. That line made us groan very, very hard. Okay. So our, our, our general thoughts about this film? This is not the best, but it's not the worst. I feel like this is, if we've had the argument that Casino Royale and Skyfall for us respectively are 1A and 1B, I think Skyfall's a little bit better, you think Casino Royale's a little bit better. For the Craigs, it goes in between Quantum of Solace for me. This is a step down tier-wise. It's still a good movie, but there's a lot with the villain 
and the explanation of the story that is just a little too far for me. Just a smidge too far over the line of the tone they've set up for these films. It feels like a throwback. It is very much intentionally a throwback. But I feel like they didn't update it enough for the character that they've built with Daniel Craig. I very much disagree. Okay. I feel like this film is a compl- is a pivot. So I I love Casino Royale slightly more than Skyfall. I think their very their aims of those movies are completely different. Yeah. So that's why I think Casino Royale is better than Skyfall. It's fine. Whatever. It's a different episode that we've argued about. <laughs> we both agree that they are amazing Bond I films. I rated them the same, but and, for different reasons. And in the top of the pantheon. Fair. This film is a pivot into old school Bond lore. Absolutely. And a return and almost a reintroduction of Bond support squad. We have Q, Money Penny, and M are playing a very active role in the plot and the need for them to exist. And I feel like they are going to be extremely important in the next Bond. Which is fine, but that's to the detriment of this movie for me. I don't think it's to the detriment. Mm. Kent, what are your feelings? So I, I enjoyed this movie overall. Um, I I didn't rewatch anything before this, and I kind of felt like I should because there were definitely things happening in it. I was like, I probably should have watched Casino Royale. I probably should have watched Skyfall. I maybe should have watched Quantum of Solace. Yeah, you could have watched Skyfall. Yeah. Skyfall would get you wherever you yeah, needed to Skyfall go for this. Yeah, Skyfall would where you needed to go. So like the big things, I remember uh, Vesper, you know, I remember mm-hmm. I remember her character and I remember some of that stuff. But there was definitely things I was like, this feels like it's relevant to something else that has happened <laughs> that, it, that I do not remember because I just memory is not great in my world. So overall, I enjoyed it. My main thought uh, watching it, uh, I watched it yesterday and I was like, this movie is so long. Uh, and I was it like, is. surely, surely it's about to be over. And I look, it's like, oh, it's got an hour to go. Okay. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And it and it feels long. I think is the thing. So it, it kind of drags in the middle. I'm kind of uh, in the middle of. It, so I was wondering. I was like, I'm not sure what all is happening here. And I mean, I, th- I felt like I was paying attention throughout the whole thing. That I was actively watching it, and I still felt like I was like, it feels like it's going somewhere, but I'm just not sure where it's going. They're trying to pack references to all of the previous movies into this movie because it is a reset. They're trying to put all of that in here, plus the Bond lore. Like I said, I like this movie. Don't get me wrong. But there's some issues with cramming as much story as they did into it that occasionally leaves it not quite as entertaining as the other ones. See, I... Okay, it's too long. No argument there. But I think it's because each sequence is too long. The car chase with Dave Bautista's character, whose name I have no idea what it is. It's it's too long. It's too long. It's a good car chase, but it is too long. The The chase with him and the plane. It's a cool sequence, but again, it is too long. The scene with Mr. White did not need yeah. to take that long. Exactly. The scene with them. It, I, okay. The scene with them in the actual like Rome building. It's a smidge too long, but it. It, there's a lot of tension, so I'll allow it. Oh, it's a grand, it, it, it's a grand dramatic entrance of a scene. It's, it's exactly. beautiful and one of the best parts of this movie. There's a lot of tension build up, so that's that one I'll allow. Oh yeah, um, them and the the Lamarican too long. 
Yeah. Like it's just yeah. it's it keeps like, okay, this is all about a minute, two minutes, three minutes too long in each one of these little sequences. And if you shaved it all, you'd get about 30 minutes out of this movie and that'd be great. It'd be fine. Yeah. I like those bits of the story, but I don't need all the exposition pieces within those bits of the story. I mean, the movie starts really great. Like, I love the opening of this, the the tracking. And, and that's probably why I remember that so vividly. Yeah. The, the one shot long tracking. I mean, it's just so good. And even that whole sequence with the helicopter and everything is mm-hmm. just very good. Okay. Daniel Craig. Like, I love that reveal of Daniel Craig in the skeleton suit. I'm like, that's hot. <laughs> that's fucking hot Dale Craig's already hot as hell but I'm just like <laughs> damn you can't even see his face and you're like that's hot this is really <laughs> this, this is good it's funny to me too because Skyfall is not that much shorter than this movie no. this is up until No Time to Die when it comes out this held the title at the time for the longest Bond film mm-hmm. it runs at like 228 yeah. No Time to Die is going to be about 20 minutes longer, but they're Fuck. doing a lot in that movie. Yeah. They've got somebody good at the helm, I'm so I'm for excited it. for it. But still. But what's fascinating to me is Skyfall is only about like five minutes shorter than this, mm-hmm. and it never feels like it drags. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. That's true. See, I for me, it never agree. did. I, I loved how, how that movie flowed, how that movie went. It was perfect for me. Well, and why, so that's why it's 1B for me. I know. You're right. It's just each individual element is really important, but they make such a meal out of it mm-hmm. that it just feels like it drags. Yeah. 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 Like, I feel like, I mean, I love me some Dave Batista, and uh-huh. I just feel like a waste in this movie. I mean, comes in and has a big entrance, you know, mm-hmm. thumbs a, a fella's eyes, you know, yeah. and, and snaps his neck, and then really is just, I mean, doesn't do much else story-wise. I mean, he, I guess he's the henchman, and maybe that's a Bond. I feel like that's a Bond-stable thing, you know, sure. maybe. But I don't know. I was expecting, like, a third-act return of Batista. Like, I was like, really getting pulled off the train? That's your end? You're not coming back? I mean, his his job was to be – so we usually have more than one villain. That's yeah. fine. And I was fine with him being the villain who was just brute force. Right. Because Dave Batista is a big dude, and I know Guardians had come out at this point. But they filmed this before, right? Yeah. Something yeah. Like that. So we didn't know what he was capable of as an actor. That makes sense. So like he's an attractive man. He's a big brute force. Just let him do that. That's fine. He certainly gets to showcase all of that on the train. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's I mean, a badass for sure. There's a point where Bond, I think, starts choking him. I'm like, can you really choke someone with a neck that big? Like, is that, <laughs> no. is that even possible? Like, this is not going to be effective. (laughs) Well, and all of this is, and this will come up in the trivia, but all of that is a throwback to Red Grant from from Russia with Love. (gasps) Robert Shaw's villain character in, this is the second Bond movie ever, and it does take place on a train, like a main set pieces on a train, Mm -hmm. indestructible villain, cannot get rid of them. The only way you're going to defeat them is by like, brutally murdering them and so his character is very much a throwback to that throwback to Mm -hmm. odd job and jaws a character who doesn't speak who is just a brute force but because we've got so much other stuff going on Mm -hmm. we don't get enough time with him if you're gonna have a villain like that they need to be in the entire movie yeah i mean that's that's the thing He, he gets pulled off the train and 
and it honestly, it felt like to me, like the rest of the movie goes by and he doesn't come back. I'm like, they forgot Dave Batista was in this movie. They forgot yeah. to call him back for the final day. Well, we should have, <laughs> exactly. We should have had him in that scene in Rome where he's actually sitting at that table, just sitting there being polite and listening. And then he gets frustrated and sick of everyone's talking and he decides to get up and that's when he goes and gouges that gentleman's eyes out and was like, yeah. this is how I'm going to deal with this problem because I'm done with y'all. Yeah. Like that would have given him a little more gravitas. Well, I think a problem is you've got Hinks, which is Dave Batista's character, oh, okay, yes. Hinks, and you've got Blofeld. Yeah. And you should have had one or the other <laughs> because, again, mm-hmm. from Russia with Love focuses on the brute force enemy mm-hmm. and that is it. That is the pe- that is the ultimate enemy that he has to defeat. Blofeld is manipulating these strings okay. and then it doesn't show up until later. Okay, so correction. We have three. We have three villains because we have Hanks, we have Blofeld, and then we have C. Yeah. But yeah. James yeah. is not the one who's directly engaging C. It's M and Money Penny and Q who are having to deal with C. There are so, too many so there things. Are too many. So we needed to remove one of those. Just one yeah. would make problem. everything better. Problem. I mean, I feel like C, I, I mean, I don't feel like C was necessary. I feel like they could have gained control of that host system mm-hmm. some other way, you know, just through hacking or whatever. I don't feel like they needed the inside guy to, to be in on it. It's a very of its time 1984 kind of message yeah. and trying to play yeah. into all the sort of intelligence gathering and and stuff that we knew and c could have been great groundwork for a later film he could have just he could have been like let's introduce that guy that actor again fucking love that dude hot as hell um he's in fleabag he's amazing um he would have been great to be discovered later as a mole i agree yeah yeah that would be great yeah don't have him turn until the end of the movie yeah, and then we realize like, oh, he's one of Spectre. Then we find out like he's wearing one of those rings or he's got a tattoo of the yeah. octopus, like something like that. We realize like, oh, we've we've entrusted this guy in our organization and we've put him in our little special like A team squad. Oh shit, no. What yeah. the- that would have been great. Yeah, so I agree. Cool. Or he hi- or he does exactly what he does in this movie, which is hijack all the intelligence. We fixed Bond. Yeah, we always fix it. We fixed the Bond movie. <laughs> it's very easy to fix these movies in hindsight. <laughs> it's true. Uh, all right. Well, the budget for this movie was $245 million. Uh, that made it the most expensive Bond film at the time. It was widely reported to be way more than that. They kept inflating costs to around $300 million. And ballooning at one point in media to $350 million, but it was nowhere near that actual cost. Now, that might have been defrayed by product placement and things like oh, that. So okay. we're not quite sure how that figure got down, but it it didn't. It was never $300 million to make this movie. It was by the hotness of Dave Bautista. Sure. That's, that's defrayed <laughs> the cost. The U.S. gross was $200 million, and worldwide it made $880,675,000. Not as much as Skyfall. That was $1.1 billion. That was our first billion-dollar Bond movie. But still, doing gangbusters internationally. So is this the first Bond film to not make as much as the one before it? No. Okay. No. I mean, we've we've had that before. A lot of those okay. intermediate Roger Moore ones, some of those tanked. Okay. So <laughs> initially, the arrangements for this and No Time to Die were reported together. So that was suggesting that they were going to do this in a two-year cycle. And do them back to back and develop them together, releasing No Time to Die in 2017. 
Craig then came out and said, well, there was a plan to do that, but I'm not fucking doing it because that is way too hard on me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The preparation for him on these movies, we'll talk about it when we get to cast. It's nuts. And the older he gets, the harder it gets for him to do it. And he's still a relatively young man, but this has been brutal on him. I mean, he's just now hitting 50. No, I think he's like 52 now. Yeah. So like... He started when he was 37. I know. <laughs> and already it was hard on him. Yeah. Just at 37. God, I'm, I'm 37 and I can't imagine it. <laughs> doing, I mean, even doing half, like even the easy stuff. We talked about last time, it's like, it's a six month process for him to get into shape to start filming. Mm-hmm. And then he would do like two hour workouts before shooting started each day just because like, it was just that much physical toll on him. Wow. Because he does a ton of these stunts himself. Yeah, he's very committed to doing most of his stunts. Per Naomi Harris, shooting took 208 days for this film. That's including reshoots. That's too many days. It was a six month process. a lot of days. Yeah, six month process to make this damn movie. Uh, it's, because, <laughs> it's because the sequences are too long. They're yeah. too damn long. They're too damn long, but also there's special effects and stunts and shit. I and that always factors in. Too many. It's uh, too many. It's Sam Mendes. That's how he it's pulls this shit off. Too many. Uh, the man's a genius, but it's too many. I know. <laughs> On to writing. Story and screenplay for this movie, uh, getting credit, is John Logan, the writer from Skyfall. Neil Purvis and Robert Wade also getting story credit, though they technically left after the last movie. Mm-hmm. And then getting the main screenplay credit is Jez Butterworth. Before this, he did Birthday Girl, The Last Legion, Huge, Edge of Tomorrow, and Black Mass. After this, he wrote Ford vs. Ferrari, is writing 2021's Cruella, and Flag Day. I loved Ford vs. Ferrari. That was a great movie. And a great script, too. Fabulous script. Edge of Tomorrow and Black Mask got noticed, especially Edge of Tomorrow. A lot of people were like, this is an impressive action movie. Is that Live, Die, Repeat? Yes. Right? Okay. Okay. Yes. It's a movie they renamed. They had to rename it because people yeah. were, it just didn't test like, well. We don't know what this is. <laughs> but that movie, I think, largely probably got him this job because it was very impressive, especially in film circles. Okay. People were really excited about this. Like, this feels like a fresh take on action. Okay. And then... Off the strength of this, mm-hmm. he's jumping into major flagship productions. No, like that that totally makes sense. It's muddled. It needed a different type of writer to punch up some of the dialogue. There's a few moments where I'm like, where's some of the quippiness? Oh my God, yes. Because Daniel Craig is quippy. The only quippiness we get is in his looks. His looks and then... That one moment where he's like, stay <laughs> to the one security <laughs> yeah. guard. Here you are, sir. One prolytic digestive enzyme shake. Do me a favor, will you? Throw that down the toilet. Cut out the middle, man. <laughs> no escape. Which we needed a few more of those. Story's good. I think we got too many. I think we got too many f- hands in the script. One too many. <sighs> Purvis and Wade are they're in charge of the overall story. Well, so that's the thing. Logan and Mendez were the ones who came up with the main thrust of the script. Okay. Purvis and Wade didn't come back on until Craig 
Mendez and the Broccolis said, can you guys come in? We're not exactly satisfied with how this turned out. Hmm. So they got John Logan's script and were like, I don't know. I think they just second guessed themselves and then brought too many hands in to try to figure it out. Oh, so it's like the problem when they've had directors that just kind of suck. They just didn't hire the right writer. Like this writer has done some good work since, but like they mm -hmm. didn't hire the right person to come in and make the changes they wanted to make. Mm -hmm. I think that's the bigger problem. And it's really not the end problem of this movie. I think the biggest end problem of this movie comes in directing. Fair. But there is a feeling of like there's one too many hands in this pie trying to make too many things happen. I buy that analysis. Yeah, me too. At one point, only Craig, Barbara Broccoli, Michael G. Wilson, and a few trusted personnel at Eon knew the actual storyline. That makes sense. So none of the writers even knew. That's stupid. (laughs) Yeah, that's odd. But this is like very pre-production. Like, okay, so Daniel Craig is a producer, so that makes sense that he would know what the arc of the story is and like, hey, we're going to bring back Blofeld. This is going to be a huge thing. Like, I understand that being so high level if you're not getting paid x amount you don't get to know about this yeah no but the no that's still bad so there's there's one other factor here okay and that is that this movie got leaked as part of the sony pictures hacks ah the initial drafts of this script got leaked through the sony pictures emails Mm -hmm. because this was part of it and so there were rewrites done to the end see now i'm bad yeah (laughs) and again that is nobody's fault uh, yep. Except for James Franco and Seth Rogen. <laughs> it is not their fault. They, I know. They it's, made a comedy decision and everyone decided to blame stupid shit on them. Well, it was it was North Korea hacking. <laughs> like, yeah. we it's know what happened. <laughs> they are two stone, stoners getting a lot of shit done. I know. They have more money than God. So shut up, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they very much were in the middle of that going like, I don't fucking know. We just made a dumb movie. I love Seth Rogen. James Franco's canceled. <laughs> oh, he's the worst. <laughs> Let's blame it on Franco. Okay. We can blame it on him. I'm comfortable with that. But leave Seth Rogen alone. I feel like there's a part of this ending, too, that feels a little bleh. Okay. I feel like this film was written expecting Daniel Craig to be done. You are correct. <gasps> okay, thank yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely felt like it was wrapping up something. They intentionally wrote that scene in the event that he decided not to come back for another film. Which scene? The ending? The ending. Or- him driving off with Madeline Swan. Okay, because I'm f- I'm totally fine with that ending only because it connects to their conversation on the train car. If you don't have that scene in the train car, the ending makes no fucking sense. Yeah, that's fair. Like, of course they sleep together and they have a connection. I also missed that scene in the train car, so. But they have a conversation in the train car. Like, she fully understands him. Like, she's like, I I totally get your life. Like, it's fine. First person he's met who does understand this. Fully understand him. Fully understands what his life has been like. And it's like, oh, okay now. So those dots have all been connected. So I'm fine with that. But yeah, it does feel like this was written so for him to walk away. Yeah. Which, okay. Which is fine if he walks away. <laughs> we'll, t- we'll talk about that at the end. Because <laughs> we, we, know, we know he does not. Right. That yeah. is very true. <laughs> I mean, honestly, this movie, I don't want to say it lost me because it didn't, but 
the whole from him being in the chair and the whole drill bits to his head from then on i kind of disconnected with it mm-hmm. like i i didn't enjoy that scene at all because they set up so much with it him in the chair and like they're like you know if i hit you in the right spot you won't remember who you won't remember her you'll die not remembering her and it seems like he hits him in the right spot and then nothing comes of it and i'm like this guy seems too smart to have just missed. Like I expected yeah. a, a, a really bad explanation. Like, oh, I had that part of my brain removed years ago, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. But just to, for him just to miss it and it not happen felt really kind of robbing of that whole moment. That whole scene had no payoff. Right, like, yeah. I really felt like the whole point of that scene was to see the cat and to have an incident wherein James Bond causes him to get the scar on his face. I feel like that's the yeah. whole purpose of that entire scene. And I was like, creepy? Because ew. Yeah. And no, like this, this this serves no purpose. It sucks because the dialogue in that scene is fan-freaking-tastic. It's great. You I love, yeah. love oh, yeah. it. Up to the point right where we reveal it, it doesn't work. It should Honestly, that whole scene should have just been them at dinner. It should have just been them at a dinner table. Oh, yeah. I mean, it could have just been empty threats over a dinner table. Absolutely. And you just see James like trying to be like, where's the knife? They took knives away from us. What what am I going to do? How am I going to murder this guy at dinner table? Like, what am I going to do while they're having this conversation? That would have been way more effective and dramatic. And they could have made it gorgeous. James and I were both present recently when a man was deprived of his eyes. And the most astonishing thing happened. Didn't you notice? He wasn't there anymore. He'd gone even though he was still alive. So this brief moment between life and death, there was nobody inside his skull. Most odd. So James, I'm going to penetrate to where you are, to the inside of your head. So an interesting point on that. Mm -hmm. The dialogue of that torture sequence is taken directly from the first Bond novel written after Fleming's death, written by Kingsley Amos called Colonel Sun. Set in North Korea, that dialogue is nearly word for word the same. Interesting. And as a result of that, the Fleming and Amos estates agreed to re-release the book with a new edition and put it out as an ebook in the United States as well, because from all accounts, it's a pretty awesome book, especially the sequence. But in that scene, what actually happens is Bond is tied to a chair in a room with a glass roof, and the sun hits the glass roof that would burn him alive. So they decided not to use that. Okay. That's fair. And the speculation is maybe they keep that for another time. That'd be cool. But that's a cool torture device. Those yeah. stakes would have made a lot more sense. Yeah. Like I they're trying you're in a torture bot. Cool. That yeah. makes sense. That's a standard trope. But this is Blofeld. It should be a different kind of torture. It well, should be more mental here. What really should have happened is the needle gets close because this is the Sean Connery laser and goldfinger moment. It gets right to the point where it's maybe it even gets inside, but it gets right to the point where it would hit him. And then he gets the watch out and blows everything up. I mean, yeah, that's what I expect, because he's he's fiddling with the watch at that Mm -hmm. point. He's he's army or you. I think he's army 
doing it yeah at that point i'm like okay it's gonna get in there and he's gonna set it off which i mean at that point i thought the watch was just gonna do like a loud alarm an ear piercing sure. alarm you know because because what q said earlier but oh um, no if they say something's gonna be loud that means go boom yeah does it do anything it tells the time <laughs> Now there is a point there. I have in my in my maybe maybe my favorite part of the movie. Uh, and is Q laughing at his own joke? Yes. Just, just I love adorable, Q. and I loved every minute of it. He's such a dork. Such a little twit. I love him. And I was real scared they were going to hurt him later in the movie. Me too. Uh, that was a note. I was like, the, I was like, this man better not put his hands on Q. And then I changed it to these men better not put their hands on. Q. <laughs> he has a mortgage and two cats to feed. Uh, Q's so good. No, it should have it should have gotten in there, and then what should happen is he does the explosion. Blofeld gets the scar. They run out, and then there's a moment where it seems like he might be affected. Mm-hmm. And Madeline is like, "Are you okay?" He's like, "I would never forget you." That's when he says that line. Once they're out of the danger, out of the danger, because yeah. then it would work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm even fine with it as it happens if you tell me why it didn't work. Like, that yeah. was my hang up. This thing is so precise. You seem to know what you're doing. Sure. Why What? Why didn't it work? Like, what kept it from doing what you just knew it was going to do? Because the next thing up, you're going to go right through his eyeballs, you know? Uh, I mean. Creepy. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so what was it? Where did you screw up? I mean, did you just mis- miscalculation or? Yeah. I don't know. Again, we can fix Bond. It's very easy. We did it, everyone. In early versions of the script, Bond was actually going to shoot Blofeld on the bridge, but they thought this would be too anticlimactic. Really? It felt pretty anticlimactic as it was. Nope. But more importantly, they wanted to bring him back. Well, I think there's that, but I think it goes, I think it proves the very important statement that M makes. The license to kill is also a license not to kill. Correct. Like, that is a very, like, he's making a very impassioned speech, and M and Bond don't really like each other. No, like, never have. Like, no. Except for except for Judy Dench. And even then, even then like, it was, he's had some problems with Mommy. But, like, exactly. Like, Mommy mommy M, and then it was a very tumultuous Silva, relationship. Silva told us Mommy um, was very bad. <laughs> okay. Anyways, Daddy M does not like Bond. <laughs> But he he like respects the organization and he is, makes a very impassioned speech to see about why he's important. Like the one man in a field does all of this stuff. And so Bond has to prove that like he's not all instinct and shoot him up. I'm going to murder everybody who's wronged me. That's like that's the important thing. I'm going to choose not to murder you. Which is fair after 24 of these movies, though. Yeah. I feel like that's bludgeoning me over the head. But... If you're somebody new to the franchise yeah. at that point, seeing it in a movie theater, I totally get why that would make sense. No. It's just like having seen all of these, I go, well, I fucking know that already. Come on. No, but also Bond always kills the big bad. Yeah, I and know. And this is supposed it, to be the biggest bad of all. It, it felt real plot devicey to me. Well, it is a big plot devicey, but if you're going to take down this, hu- this huge multi-tentacled organization, you have to keep the big bad alive. I know, I know. Blofeld has to stay alive. Like, there's no question about that, but... Yeah, hello. Oh, boy. It's very important. And it's poignant. Come on, this is good (laughs) storytelling. Gah. 
Finally, the movie contains an eerie number of similarities to a movie from the same studio, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. I still haven't seen that movie. <laughs> Apparently, they, they give you a laundry list on IMDb, and I was like, oh, oh, wow. They have attractive people in that movie, too. But it was like, this is a lot the same. All right, directing. Okay. Sam Mendez. What do we think of Mr. Mendez directing in this movie? really pretty he has amped up the pretty for this movie but he has lost the plot on pacing he he forgot how to edit a movie (laughs) he forgot how to talk to his editor he doesn't have deacons that's the problem yeah that is one really important point here he is well known for working with cinematographer roger deacons who just won an oscar for 1917 technical genius facts he got a pretty good replacement he got hoyt van hoytema who is the Swiss cinematographer who has worked closely with Christopher Nolan on Interstellar and Dunkirk. Just some other movies that are really pretty and cool. Yeah. He also worked on Ad Astra and The Fighter, all really gorgeously shot movies. Even The Fighter, which is gritty, is still gorgeously shot. Even though Ad Astra was on my worst movies of last year, it was gorgeous. It's undeniably beautiful. It really is. So he, he didn't get a scrub. No, he did not. But it's not the cinematography stuff. It, it really is the editing on the this editing movie. On this film sucks. There's so much to cut out. Yeah. And I don't know if they felt like they had to do it with the writing and they felt like it weren't explaining enough. But I think also he just had these big grand epic visions for this movie and he did it to the detriment of the story. He didn't know what to get rid of. Yeah. Because again, we like all the different sequences and the story points, but we needed to shave... A minute here, two minutes there, some bits here, some meaningful glances could have been just a couple seconds and we would have been fine. Oh my God, there's so many fucking meaningful glances in this movie. <laughs> I mean, we just, just, there's too many. The Day of the Dead opening parade is the first Bond scene to be shot as though it was in a single take. In reality, it was about four shots, which is the fun game you get to play when you see something like that. You're like, where's the cut? Where's the cut? Where's the cut? And so Definitely like coming out the window, it's, yes. it's like the window. Well, like the first one I, I just knew was the second they go in the hotel and you see like the CGI wall pan. You're like, there's the cut right there. Yeah. Number one. Mm-hmm. And part of that is they're shooting parts of it in Pinewood in England on the 007 stage. And then they're shooting parts of it in Mexico City. So that's the other side. Mm-hmm. At any time you're in an interior, you can almost always guess they're in England. Mm-hmm. Because there's too much stuff that they have to deal with in order to be able to shoot in location, unless it's a perfect location. Yeah. It was inspired by the opening tracking shots of Touch of Evil and the movie I Am Cuba. It involved 1,500 extras that were padded out to 10,000 using CGI. With 77 dancers, 170 makeup artists, and 10 giant skeletons with 250,000 paper flowers. It's beautiful. I mean, it, it looks gorgeous. <laughs> it really does. It is stunning. And then the action is incredible in that one. I'm sorry. I just love him falling on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At the end of the movie, where they, he says, you trust me. They jump off. I'm like, oh, damn. I hope it's another dope-ass couch landing. Yes. <laughs> it's so, so great. Because it's just like, I needed that. We needed that moment. I'm just like, yep. You need a moment where he just makes a smug smirk to the camera like yeah i know i'm fucking great 
Well, it's just that like shit goes sideways. Like it's not always perfect. No. No, I, I I love that. He blew up an entire city block. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, well, I'm going to go be James Bond now. Rome was selected as a key city for the film because Mendez was impressed by the power and scale of its architecture, particularly not just the Roman ruins, but the fascist architecture built in the 20s and 30s. Grand, imposing, strong, like. He wanted that to be hanging over Bond, which makes sense is when you go into that room with Spectre and you're like, yeah, this feels like a fucking evil organization. Uh, it does. They chose the Palace of Caserta in Naples to model the set for the introduction of Oberhauser, but that whole thing was done in Pinewood. Yeah, I believe that. Mendez stated that the story was, quote, kind of a creation myth at play, basically saying that all of previous Spectre canon would be set aside. They were going to create an entirely new idea of that. However, they hearken back to a ton of the old Bond films. There are references to the original Connery Bond run peppered throughout this movie. Mm -hmm. From Russia with Love, we have the fight on a train. The Spectre board meeting where a member is killed, that's a scene that's in Thunderball. Bond traveling to a clinic on a snow-capped mountain, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, Villain base inside a crater, you only live twice, and of course, not seeing Blofeld until well into the movie. We never saw Blofeld in the original run with Dr. No, and we never saw Blofeld until you only live twice. Yeah. He was just a shadowy figure and a voice. And a cat. And a cat. (laughs) They really, from the cars to the lighting to the cut of Bond's suits, they went back to the original run. For this movie. I mean, they have him show up in the white jacket on the train. He's in a white tuxedo. White tuxedo. So good. (laughs) So good. (laughs) The movie used a total of 1,000 crew, more than Skyfall. Mendez refused to refer to Bond's female counterparts as Bond girls. He prefers to call them Bond ladies. I appreciate that. (laughs) He declined to take on another movie when Skyfall happened. He said, I'm not going to do the next Bond film. Then he declined again in 2013. Reports were that they delayed the production another year trying to get him back because he started to say, maybe I'll do it. But he was working in the theater at that point Hmm. on one of his theatrical productions because he does a ton of that as well. And that leads us to who could have been better. They seriously considered trying to get Christopher Nolan for this movie. That would have been great. Oh, yeah. Nolan has long been the dream Bond director for this team. They talked about when they did Casino Royale, Batman Begins was a huge influence Mm -hmm. on them wanting to restart the franchise. Mm -hmm. And having seen Nolan do these things with Mendez waffling about coming back, they thought, maybe you want to do this. Maybe you're finally interested in taking it on. And Nolan said, I appreciate the offer, but I don't want to come in to an already established run. Totally fair. If I come in, I want it to be a new character. Oh, he's probably going to do the next Bond. That's the question is if they do a reboot, if they do an entire story reboot for Bond, they might come back to him again. Well, no, but I could see that just with a new Bond, not a new story reboot, but a new Bond could they could still they could probably still get him because it's a new character. It just depends. I don't I don't know. It's, it's up to him, but he did say, it was like, look, if they were going to redo this again, they were going to start fresh with a new actor, I'd be interested. So cool. 
So keep your eye on that. A couple years down the line, Chris Nolan might be doing a Bond run. Also, who could have been better? Ong Lee. No. Tom Hooper. Also, no. This is before he <laughs> went to movie jail, okay? David Yates of Harry Potter fame. Oh, no. But I understand. He's a good director. I will give him that. He's very good at adaptations. Yes. But no. Danny Boyle, who will come up when we talk about No Time to Die, though he is not making that movie. No. Yes. But no. No. (laughs) Shane Black of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Iron Man 3 fame. Oh. And tons of action movie writing fame. I mean, Shane Black also gave us the Lethal Weapon series. So, you know, he's a good fucking writer. And Nicholas Winding Refn of Drive. Ooh. I still haven't seen that movie. It's Ooh, Drive is. I like Drive. <sighs> he is too much up his own butt with his style to be now able to true. convincingly pull off Bond. Fair. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know that I'd pick him for Bond. Uh, yeah, because yeah, he he is so intense about his personal vision for stuff. Yeah, to his detriment at this point because he's really not that great a director. Mm. And then finally, British bookmaker William Hill, there was no no actual connection to this, but he made Guy Ritchie the favorite to direct this film. Ew, no. <laughs> no. If they were going to do like a full-on throwback to the Connery era and like redo everything, Guy Ritchie would do a pretty cool job, I think. No, if they were going to make it the, the whole A-team group, if it's going to be all about all of them together battling a villain, sure. Get Guy Ritchie. It'd be a cool movie. Snatch is a great film, but no. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking no. <laughs> There's only one person who could have replaced Mendez, and it's the slightly superior director, Christopher Nolan. Mm. Slightly. I don't, I don't know if I can say he's superior anymore with 1917. They both. They also both make wildly different kinds of movies. It's very true. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's really hard to, to say. I'm keeping Mendez for this movie. I guess. Just... I- Figure it out, my dude. I wouldn't replace him with any of those names. <laughs> Our cast. Yay! We start with Daniel Craig as James Bond. Mm-hmm. What do we think of his portrayal of James in this film? Say it. Say it. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> He's so fucking hot. <laughs> Love James Bond. <laughs> he is. He's very attractive. I like Daniel Craig as a Bond. I do. Um, it is. I mean, I think he... he brings like like what i like the whole gritty part of it but also i think he i mean at times you can tell he's having fun with it too yeah. like a lightness to it as well and in this movie you are feeling his age yeah yeah and they're acknowledging it in a way they haven't always in the franchise mm-hmm. they've done it a couple of times they really did it in the non-sanctioned production yeah but i mean especially like roger moore they never acknowledged that this man was like in his mid-50s and could not do this stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. And with him in this movie, he feels like he's getting old. Mm-hmm. Not like, you know, decrepit old, but he feels like he's getting middle-aged. Yeah. And he is weary of all of this. Yeah. Well, I like he's wearing a, a holster in this film for his gun. Yeah. I think that serves two purposes. One, it's easier for him to carry his gun around. But also, that's support for his shoulder that he got shot in. Also true. So I, I kind of love that, that it's very subtle. It's a costuming choice, but it's also a character choice. It kind of lets you know, like, yeah, Bond's getting older. And he's been through so much bullshit. He needs some therapy <laughs> really, really bad. It feels like he got some therapy. Like, to be perfectly honest, 
Like, he seems like he's a little more well-adjusted in this movie. <laughs> he has a very specific goal. Yes. M- Mommy M gave him a goal. Yeah. She said, yeah. yeah. If I'm dead, this is the people you need to go find out. You need to go find these people. And it runs way deeper than he thought yeah. it ever would. And he didn't just sleep with everybody. No. Which he is the least horny Bond. He is really? Le- he really is the least horny Bond. Roger Moore is the horniest Bond he of all time. He slept with everyone. At 47, he was finding it much harder to get fit for this role. No. This was his first acting role in three years. He took a break. Apart from his cameo in Force Awakens. Oh, he was a stormtrooper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His salary was reported $39 million. He is officially the highest paid bond in history. He earned it. Oh, yeah. Again, we've said this. Every prior bond, all of them said he's great. He's the perfect choice. Connery, Lazenby, Moore, Dalton, and Brosnan all went, yep, he's perfect. That makes my heart happy. It's so good. <laughs> Yeah, that is, that is good that all the previous ones approve. Like the little Bond brotherhood are like, he's great. He's a fabulous yeah. choice. Craig's favorite Bond film, which just so happens to be Sean Connery's favorite Bond film, is From Russia with Love. So it makes sense why we might have some of those similar themes pop up here. Mm-hmm. He was injured at least twice in this film. He suffered a knee injury filming in Austria. And he got a little boo-boo when he bonked his head on the interior of one of the Aston Martin DB10s. <laughs> <laughs> he got an ouchie on the fancy wow. car. Mm-hmm. It was not apparently a serious injury, but he did he did bonk his head a little. I don't feel sad for you. <laughs> no. 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 No sympathy. Um, what that also means is that he got to drive that car in the stunt sequences. Mm. <laughs> nice. He has stated publicly that this was his favorite Bond film to work on. Oh, nice. So he had the most fun doing it. At the time he was cast in Casino Royale, one complaint was that he could not drive a stick. So at the end of this film, Bond requests one last thing, gets the car, and he, or maybe a stunt driver, shifts the manual gear, possibly mocking the allegations or showing, yeah, I fucking learned how to drive a stick. (laughs) (laughs) So we get that one little moment in the the DB5 where we're like, whatever, assholes. That's cute. Next up, Christoph Waltz as Franz Oberhauser, a.k.a. Ernst, Stavros Blofeld. Before this, he did almost exclusively German film and television, except for he was in 1989's GoldenEye, that is the TV movie about Ian Fleming, Ordinary Decent Criminal, Inglorious Bastards, The Green Hornet, Water for Elephants, The Three Musketeers in 2011, Carnage, Django Unchained, Muppets Most Wanted, Horrible Bosses 2, and Big Eyes. After this, he did 2016's The Legend of Tarzan, Tulip Fever, Downsizing, Alita Battle Angel, and he will be in The French Dispatch, No Time to Die, and 2021's Pinocchio. So, what do we think of Christoph Waltz? I love him. Oh, yeah. Christoph Waltz is great. He's so menacing in the best way. After Hans Landa, who the fuck else were you going to get to play Blofeld? I love Inglorious Bastards so much. And... He's able to do the same thing, but he's playing a completely different character. I never feel like I'm getting the same guy. You're getting a similar tone because that's what you want. Sure. Like, I want the same menace. I want the same menace as Hans Landa, but I don't want the same cartoonish evil. No, not at all. If we're going to redo Blofeld, because Blofeld has been a bit of a cartoon historically, now I want him to be calm and collected and just pure evil. 
and he is. Yeah. Yeah. Like, even in those weak scenes, even in that torture scene, he still is terrifying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think he, I mean, he carries a big portion of that scene just easily. Yeah. I like how he's so detached. And as soon as he clocks James, it is one of the most haunting things because nobody knows who James Bond is. Yeah. Not initially. Oh, that turn and that when he looks up, you're just like, yeah. And then cuckoo, cuckoo. Oh my God. Oh, oh, the whole explanation of how a cuckoo, a cuckoo gains its nest by forcing out the other eggs. Uh, uh. (laughs) He's so evil. It's fantastic. There's no real trivia on him, but who could have been better? No one. Approached but unwilling to commit to six months production, Gary Oldman. Oh, yeah. That's Yeah, fair. I can see Gary. Yeah, I can see Gary Oldman in that same role. And she would tell Ejafor. No. Like, I could kind of see it. He like could him. be a great Bond villain, but probably not Blofeld. Not, not this Bond villain, but he could be a great Bond villain, yes. He was also up for the role of C. Ooh, he would have been a very interesting C. Yes. Interesting. Would have given it a gravitas that I... Andrew Scott is great, but one of Andrew Scott's talents is pure smarm. And every once in a while, it's really eye-rolly in this movie. Edge of Four would have had a much more serious tone that would have had us waffling a little bit more of, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Because at no point did I ever feel like Andrew Scott's characterization was a good guy. Ever. I begged him as bad the moment he walked on screen. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor would have given it something else that I'm like, I don't know. I, I might have waffled a little bit. Of, is, this, is this guy actually part of this organization? <laughs> Next, we have Lea Seydoux as Madeline Swan. Before this, she again did mostly French films, but was in Inglorious Bastards, mm-hmm. the 2010 Robin Hood with Russell Crowe, Midnight in Paris, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, Farewell, My Queen, Blue is the Warmest Color, The Grand Budapest Hotel, St. Laurent, and The Lobster. After this, she did a voice for the video game Death Stranding, and will be in The French Dispatch and No Time to Die. What do we think of Leia Seydoux? I don't have any... I don't know, really. I mean, she's there. (laughs) (laughs) She is there. She is better than some of the other Bond girls that we've had before, because she is an actress, first and foremost. I would say that of all of the Bond girls we have ever had, she is the most subtle. Yes, I will agree with that. Because yeah, she's, them, yeah. she's not meant to be a Bond girl. She's meant to be a Bond wife. Mm, that's fair. She actually has a backstory. She has depth. She's meant to make it out of this film alive. She's like, she's supposed to make it to the next movie. <laughs> like she's like, she's supposed to last. She has stakes. So like so she's written completely different than any other Bond girl we've ever had. Yeah, and and that is the thing. That is that is one really telling thing. The only other Bond girl that we've ever had that had this much experience and this kind of acting chops was Diana Rigg in on Her yeah. Majesty's Secret Service. Hell yeah, Diana Rigg. And in that movie, there was a logical reason for it. We needed somebody super experienced because we had a brand new actor playing James Bond, like fresh to acting with George Lassenby. Mm-hmm. And in this, it, so it is interesting. Mendez specifically chose her because of her experience. Mm-hmm. He had worked with Berenice Marlowe in Skyfall, mm-hmm. who had never really done a role on screen. Okay. 
And he was like, for this role, I want someone with experience. Yeah. And it was absolutely the correct decision. Sure. Now, that being said, she is subtle enough with this movie with so much going on that that subtlety could just make her feel like she's part of the scenery. Um, That's not her fault. No, 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 no. no. But that's by design. But what is she supposed to be doing? She's supposed to be hiding. She should be a person who fades into the background. What is she doing in that that place in the chalet? Like James Bond is like, you have this much experience. Why are you here? She's meant to fade in the background on yeah. purpose. That's what her father taught her to do. Exactly. <laughs> How are you going to protect yourself and stay alive? Exactly. She should disappear. The whole point. It's like you went to the Sorbonne in Oxford. Why would you be up in the middle of this cold mountain? And it's like, because people will kill me. <laughs> exactly. So the fact that she could fade into the background is a compliment to her acting because yeah. that's what she's supposed to do. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is. She is one of the best actresses we've had in one of these roles. Oh, sure. Hands down. And like I said, I think any time where it's too much of her blending in and we're missing her is a fault of having so much other stuff going on that we're missing scenes that would be more interesting for her, too. I would say probably it's also just what she had to work with, because, I mean, if if part of this movie is being written in a way that it's a send off for Daniel Craig, it's Mm -hmm. like. This is also a send off for her. You know, yeah. they're both riding off together. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's a the writing of it. It's just mm-hmm. I don't know. And nothing really stuck out, I guess, about her, which I guess is is the point that, mm-hmm. you know, she is to blend in. It's just what I came out of it with. Nothing nothing she did really stuck out to me. Yeah. She drank prior to her audition mm-hmm. the night before and forgot some of the lines, so she botched the reading entirely. She asked if she could come back in, and the filmmakers graciously allowed it. They were like, yeah, no, we, we get it. Flub it. Come back. Try another time. And in the end, she landed the role. That's nice. So her character's name is a reference to Marcel Proust's Remembrance of Things Past. In that series of novels, a Madeline provokes involuntary memories from a character, <laughs> like the photos of Oberhauser evoke a response from Bond. And, of course, the main character of those novels is Swan, S-W-A-N-N. So hence, we have a story about Bond solving a mystery by remembering things past. (laughs) They didn't say it in the movie. No, thank God. But it's a nice, subtle literary reference for her name. Okay. I can appreciate that. That's fine. Who could have been better? Hmm. Helen Flanagan of Coronation Street, because this character was originally supposed to be British. Okay. Kate Upton of Modeling. (laughs) Oh, no. No, thank you. Joanne Froggett from Downton Abbey and interested in being in this movie and I don't know if it's for this role but I'm putting her here Kim Kardashian West (laughs) give her a role like Wayne Newton's role I mean in the Dalton movies I don't I don't know where she fits in any of this or where she would no she can have a role she can be a patient at the chalet yeah, I mean that would have been perfect. Honestly, that would have been a fun cameo. I'm trying to think of a role, and the only actual role that she could have played, like theoretically, was Lucia. Was Monica Bellucci's role? 
That that's that's what I was thinking. She could do that role. I mean, t- t- a role that had some sub, some substance. I mean, she could have been, you know, somebody that you know in the beginning, the the girl on with Bond at the beginning. But it, to be of something of substance, yeah. The only thing I was think was, was thinking of was Monica Bellucci's role. Not that it would be good, but no. she could right, do it. right. <laughs> but but to have a character of substance, you need to be an actress of substance. And yeah, yeah. Kim Kardashian isn't even a person of substance. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's no, <laughs> no trivia for him, but I'm going to mention him because he does get to play a role here. Ray Fiennes as M. Mm-hmm. He really is great. He owns this role of M, and I love how much of a throwback it is to our original M. Oh, yeah. Like uh, he has the same sort of old, stiff upper lip, kind of doughy Britishness that just is so perfect, especially with the balding that he's got going on. Like, it just works perfectly. I mean, I, I feel like he could churn out, like, 10 of these rows in a month, you know? And it just fits, you know? Sure. I like that in this movie, he's the old regime. Yeah. And that's what he's fighting. And previously, he was the one who was ousting Judy Dench's M. Three years earlier, one movie before, <laughs> one movie before he is the new guard. He's the new guard. <laughs> And so I I kind of love I love that and I just kind of love that he kind of hates James Bond. Oh, everything he stands for. He, he fucking yeah. hates him. He doesn't like he's always in trouble. He's yelling about James Bond, but at the same time it's just like, but we need him. I need him. So like what else am I going to do? So like he's got that he's he's still an honor-bound gentleman and so I like that and I I love what Ray Fiennes brings to that. So I I really I, yeah. I, I got that he I love that he got to stretch that bit of his character in this this movie. Yep. And I'm I'm excited to see how much more he gets to do with No Time to I Die. I really hope that it's a lot. Yeah. All right. Monica Bellucci as Lucia Schiara. Before this, she was in Bram Stoker's Dracula, Under Suspicion, Irreversible, Tears of the Sun, The Matrix Reloaded, Enter the Matrix, The Matrix Revolutions, The Passion of the Christ, She Hate Me, The Brothers Grimm, Shoot Em Up, The Private Lives of Pippa Lee, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, and The Whistleblower. After this, she's been uh, she's been in a lot of foreign films more recently, but she was in Mozart of the Jungle, the television series, and the reboot of Twin Peaks in 2017. What do we think of Monica Bellucci in this role? She brings a lot of gravitas to this very small role. Yeah. Which I like. There's something about having an actress that you know is renowned for their beauty, but is also a fucking kick-ass actress. Yeah. Yeah. That is able to then say, yes, she is going to be a hot Italian widow who also is terrified because she knows she's going to die any second. Oh, and then also, like, she's going to sleep with James Bond, the guy who'd murdered her husband. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because that's just how things work out. So much going on with that character. There's nothing wrong with this. But she she manages to embody it. Yeah, totally. You feel like it's crazy, the billing that she got for this movie. But then you're like, no, she's a very well-known actress, especially internationally. Oh, sure. And on top of that, She's got the chops to do it. She she does more in her, you know, 10 minutes than a lot of people do in hours. She earned every minute of screen time in yeah, this movie. And it's really good. She makes that that role something, you know, mean something that a lot of people did just would have been just a little part of the movie. But, you know, she puts like weight behind it and makes it important and makes it feel important to the to the whole story. Absolutely. I would not trim anything that we have of her. No. 
She had previously auditioned for the franchise to play the role of Paris Carver in Tomorrow Never Dies. She would have been great in that. Oh, she would have worked so much better than Terry Hatcher. And I don't hate Terry Hatcher, but like she would have been so good in that role. No, that role got hacked for reasons beyond anyone's control. There's like 5,000 reasons, but she still would have been better than Terry Hatcher. Of course. At 51, she is the oldest Bond woman, which is her preferred term, ever cast. She thought this would preclude her from ever being cast in the film. When she got approached, she thought, are they going to have me replace M? Like, why am I getting this audition? <laughs> oh, that's sad and funny at the same time. And then they were like, no, we want you to be a love, small love interest for Bond. And it was like, oh. Yes. All right. Let's do it. <laughs> Who could have been better? No one. Penelope Cruz. Yeah. Javier Bardem's spouse. Yes. And then... The character was originally supposed to be Scandinavian. Okay. So Ingrid Bolsobertel, who is Armistice on Westworld. You may remember. Oh, okay. And also was in 2014's Hercules. And Bridget Hjort Sorensen, who you would best know as Commissar in Pitch Perfect 2. Oh, okay. The leader of the rival European oh, okay. group. All right. So uh, okay. possibilities for your Scandinavian actor, what? which again, I get that if we're going to go that route, but what? we went Italian. And we picked the perfect person. But why yeah. not Helen Mirren? Italian. But Helen Mirren. <laughs> Helen Mirren is fantastic, but Italian. But still, I really like this mature Bond woman thing. <laughs> Maybe in No it. Time to Die. Oh, yes. Thank you. Surprise cameo. Thank you. Then Dave Bautista as Mr. Hinks. Yeah. Before this, he did WWE and MMA. And then did My Son, My Son, What Have You Done, Chuck, Riddick, and Guardians of the Galaxy. After this, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Blade Runner 2049, Avengers Infinity War, Stuber, Avengers Endgame, My Spy, and he will be in 2020's Dune remake and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. What do we think about Dave Bautista? We've already talked about him a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Dave Bautista does what Dave Bautista needs to do in this movie. I just wish I wish it had come after Guardians. So I mean, like filming it would have come after Guardians, so they would have probably felt more comfortable giving him more, just a little bit more. See, and more is a relative term because I feel like they give him a lot. They didn't give him many words. All he does is show up, punchy punchy, mean stare, murder. But he does need some more time with that yes. because I really wanted him to be the Robert Shaw Red Grant character. Yeah, I wanted him to be in the background of every scene. Mm-hmm. Red Grant is in the background of every scene of From Russia With Love. He is this constant presence. Okay. And they spend a lot of time on other stuff that were missing hinks in just the background of everything. Okay, that's it. Yeah, I think I would have rather seen him as a henchman more than like i mean because he, he seemed i mean he seemingly to me was operating on his own agenda i would have i would i think i think it would have been better if he was a henchman being directed like hey you know by blowfield go out and make james life hell for a while physically beat him down that way i could mentally break him in half yeah i i number one i would agree i mean he's modeled to be one of the henchmen he's modeled after jaws and odd job sure but if he had been like always looming in yeah. just little shots, even even not in the sequences, the action sequences he's in, but even in just tense moments, if we see him turn a corner and it's like he's there for his like for like a following. frame, mm-hmm. 
where it's always in the back of your mind is like, is he going to do something Mm -hmm. that would honestly just terrify me with him more and would have given him more to play with? I agree. Because he's a fantastic actor. He he really is. Drax is probably my favorite part of the Guardians films. And he takes it very, very seriously. Oh, and I loved um, he's in a. Blade Runner. Yeah, he's in Blade Runner 2049. For a very small time, but I loved him in it. There's a reason why not just action movies or like action comedies want to work with him, but directors like Denny Villeneuve want to work with this guy is because he knows what the hell he's doing. He takes it very seriously. Yeah. 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 He's gone on record at one point in an interview. I remember him saying, he's like, look, I don't just want to be another action movie star. I don't want to be The Rock. I want to win a fucking Oscar. I want to be an actor. That's awesome. And I'm like, awesome dude we need to get we need to make him his rocky oh, oh that would be so an mma rocky oh, for yeah. him would be amazing uh, go watch the rock all of them they're amazing <laughs> it's worth the journey he does have one line in this entire film Shoot. <laughs> off the train and who could have been better Dwayne the rock, rock johnson, johnson. No. No, no. <laughs> no. Allegedly his price was way too high and that's why they decided sure. not to go for him. Right. And he he's yeah. he would have been a cartoon in it. He'd already established himself in a certain type of role. Yeah. No. I, yeah. yeah. No, he would have not been right at all. But there's a fun connection for The Rock. Okay. The Rock is the grandson of Peter Fenene Maivia, who was a car driver and uncredited fight choreographer on You Only Live Twice. Oh nice. And finally for our main cast. We get Ben Wishaw as Q. I love him. Being so dorky and wonderful. He's just precious. I he's I mean, I cried when Desmond Llewellyn was gone. Mm-hmm. Our previous Q. But he is he's the perfect replacement. Making him young was just the perfect thing. And now he's so much more cocky. Which is just perfect. Yes, a cocky cue is yep. hilarious. While also being utterly neurotic. Oh, and, ter- <laughs> and terrified of Bond. Because he's not, he totally remembers, you can murder me with your thumb. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, which I love. I love it so much. He's just, he's just looking at him like, 20, so we'll get it for 24, 48 hours. <clears throat> it's so great. Uh, I, re- I really don't like you right now. Because of the name Spectre, he got the nickname Inspector Gadget as a result of the title of this film. Oh, <laughs> it's precious. And finally, Naomi Harris as Money Penny. She kicks ass. I love the being behind the desk part of it. Yeah. Like Money Penny's behind the desk, but also scheming behind the scenes. Because we knew she was doing that the whole time. Sure. We never really saw it. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, we get to see it. In fact, we don't ever go from, I mean, we have one office scene with M, uh-huh. but a lot of the office scenes are from Money Penny's point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I love the scene where she gets the phone and she's reading through it, and then he walks in. Morning. <laughs> and he's like, it's not your birthday. No, that was last week. And I'm like, oh, that's a direct callback to a previous movie. But I, also, I, just, I love the fact, too, that he does that. His total thing is like, oh, no, have I been a shitty boss? because <laughs> he's got so much other stuff going on it's just a it's just a very oh no did i do something shitty did i forget your birthday no okay <laughs> going off to work very to- slice of life moment which is very <laughs> yeah oh yeah I, yeah. Lo- I do love that in the spy world now i've got to go who decide who's gonna die um 
But no, she's she's fun. The whole scene. Oh god. That check. Who is it? Oh, uh, my boss had his credit card stolen. It's nothing. Why don't you go back to sleep? Don't be long. Who was that? No one. No, it wasn't. It's just a friend. At this time of night? It's called life, James. You should try it sometime. <laughs> I, I love I love the subtle like shaming from Bond. Oh yeah, all yeah. people. Which, yeah, which is just great. I, they have as good of chemistry as the original Money Penny and Sean Connery did. Well, and see what I love with Daniel Craig and Naomi Harris is that she's a field agent. Yeah, she may not be a double O, but she's of almost the same rank as him. She can kill him with her thumb, too. The only reason she's behind a desk is because she, she shot a double she O. Shot, she shot him. Yeah. She actually, yeah. she's the huh. reason he needs that brace. Yeah. <laughs> and she's been helping M with this transition. So she is actually, I, I really do hope they make her become M eventually. I that would be so love, good. That would be so perfect. So, like, she's on a different career path now, but, like, she's his equal in a lot of ways. So their flirtation feels not as inappropriate and like again she could kill you with her thumb too yeah so like it, that's the difference it's a lot more fun and she yeah. gives as good as as he does yeah they have really great chemistry i mean I, and i don't even i like i felt like they didn't even interact a whole lot in this sure. movie i mean definitely yeah. not face-to-face interaction yeah oh they're so cute all right on to our pawns random people of note we have Andrew Scott as C, of course, the hot priest from Pleabag, and Moriarty on Sherlock. He's the hottest. Along with a fun bit in 1917. He's one of the few lighthearted moments in that movie. I love him so much. <laughs> He's perfect against Ray Fiennes. He has to be a little shit. Yes. Okay. He can't. He has to be a little shit against prim and proper Ray Fiennes. Yes. That's why yeah. he was hired, because I know y'all wanted... Chiwetel Ejiofor, but he would have been too prim and proper. Well, funny thing is, Ejiofor was reportedly cast in the role originally, <gasps> but Scott replaced him because he had $1 million less in salary. Fair. <laughs> Fair. Sometimes it pays to be cheap. <laughs> yeah. Eon Productions is cheap as they shit. Are cheap and as also, fuck. I mean, $245 million and 40 of that went to Craig. He's also a producer, so... Well, but that's just salary for his acting. That's not his producer credit. So, okay. like, okay, but think about how injured he is. Like, uh, no, I, I get why he got paid that, but I'm just saying, I understand why you're cutting a million off the other side of the budget when you've got that much in your bond. Yeah, like a fifth of your budget is going <laughs> to your your head, dude. Yeah, that's fair though. Rory Kinnear reappearing as Tanner. He's such a good Tanner. He's so perfect in this movie. He is. Jesper Christensen is Mr. White. Of course, he's returning from Quantum of Solace and Casino Royale. Mm -hmm. Stephanie Sigmund as Estrella, the woman with Bond in Mexico City. She was on the 2017 TV remake of SWAT and Narcos. She gets significant billing in this movie, mm -hmm. which is one interesting thing because she is a fairly well-known Mexican actress, and she is the first Bond girl from Mexico. Mm-hmm. She stated that the Dia de los Muertos scene really captured how those celebrations feel in Mexico. Interesting. So that's one really cool hmm. thing about it. We have Judy Dench appearing in video footage as M, uncredited. Fun thing about the scene, it is filmed in exactly the same spot with exactly the same details matching the moment when Dench checks Silva's first link in Skyfall. 
Oh, okay. So that means that right after that scene, she already knew about Skiara, the bad guy, as far back as that moment. Okay, so she knew I'm going to die. She she knew she was maybe going to die, and she knew that this all goes back to something far deeper than James knows about. Hmm. Greg Wilson, who is producer Michael G. Wilson's son, plays a man in a corridor when MMC meet. Okay. <laughs> Michael G. Wilson has been the longtime writer and producer on this franchise, so no wonder his son got involved. But he's been involved in the franchise since Die Another Day and just executive produced the movie The Rhythm Section. That movie looked bad. That movie looked not terrible. That movie looked bad. Yeah. <laughs> but he is stepping out on his own to exec produce things. So that's cool. That's kind of cool. And finally, Michael G. Wilson also plays a man in corridor <laughs> when MNC <laughs> meets. <laughs> I really like these descriptive. Uh, yeah. <laughs> He's names. in every movie in the smallest possible role. Like I love it's it's fun enough that he's like I'm a producer I'm going to be in this movie but then he picks literally the tiniest role he can find that's that's the best though it's brilliant <laughs> because it's hubris to be like I'm going to be the person giving you your coffee and I'm going to have five <laughs> whole seconds of my face on screen no it's great like no I'm just the dude in the back like, huh? that's that's literally all I am because I was just here today and I was already wearing a suit that's probably that's more the reason why it happened no that's that's great. Like that's feels the, like that. That's the best way to be an extra. All right. Our song. Our song. Written by Sam Smith and Jimmy Napes and performed by Sam Smith. It's Writings on the Wall. What do we think about this song? So, okay, I had this down as a note to ask okay. of what you all since you all been through mm-hmm. uh, you know, all of them. Yes. What you thought of it as a Bond theme? Because as a song, I, I like it. Like, I, for, it's a song that I hear on the radio mm-hmm. all the time. And I have a very short commute to work. Mm-hmm. So that's why I just listen to the radio and don't like load up, you know, sure. Spotify or something. But I hear it quite a bit. And I've always enjoyed this song. But like, ranking is a Bond theme. That's what I, I was wondering what you all thought. I'm going to say this mm-hmm. before we say how we feel about it as like a Bond song. Mm-hmm. I do think it fits the tone and the grandess of this movie. Mm-hmm. It's very dramatic mm-hmm. and has a lot of dark tones, mm-hmm. which I think is perfect for what this movie's doing. Yeah. However, it's like second tier for me. Okay. I think it's good, mm-hmm. but I don't think it rises to the level. I mean, our our two personal favorites are still Chris Cornell's You Know My Name from Casino Royale and then Adele Skyfall. Adele Skyfall yeah. is just a perfect blend. Yep. Of a perfect pop song also being perfect for the movie it's Mm -hmm. being done for. And both of those songs have the added bonus of being fabulous on their own separate from the movie. Yeah. So I'm of the opinion that the Bond theme has to set the table for the movie. Yeah. First and foremost. Like that's its job is to like, like you see your, your opening scene, you get a little taste of what's going on. Then you get this nice sequence, usually of a bunch of naked ladies and the song, it's like, all right, this is what we're going to see. This is this We're setting the table for what we're about to enjoy. And this song really does do that job. I hate the opening sequence. I'm just going to say that. It's crap. It's like the inverse of Die Another Day. It is. It's bad. Like, Die Another Day was really cool title sequence that's showing a story yeah. with a terrible Madonna song. Yeah. This, yeah this, <laughs> like, the worst song. This opening sequence does not match the song and the story that's being told in the song. So I hate that. The song is very good. I do not like it because 
for me, it was overplayed to death and annoyed the shit out of me. Mm. <laughs> I am not a big Sam Smith fan. I recognize the song is very good. I'm annoyed by it. it it's been played to death for me. It's like anything from American Idiot. <laughs> and also, this doesn't feel like a radio song. Oh, but they play it all the time. I, and I get that. I mean, do. I hear it. They still yeah, do. I hear, I hear it on a college station is what I hear it on. I mean. But like, it, it's so weird to me because- it is a great grand movie song, mm-hmm. yeah. but I don't understand why it's such a pop hit because it, I mean, it really is good for what the movie is doing. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's got good lyrics and it doesn't have to do anything with the movie. Yeah. So, yeah. and Sam Smith sings it and they have a lovely voice. Yeah. This was the first Bond theme to reach number one in the UK. Ah, very nice. And. This did win an award for this movie because it did win Best Original Song at the Academy Awards. I remember the performance being dreadfully boring, though. They were off that night for whatever reason. Nervous. Ner- it's That's the yeah. cracking thing. I, I may be remembering it, but wasn't it also, there was like another really great performance on that, that on the Academy Awards. It was Till It Happens to You with Lady Gaga. That's it. Okay. The hunting ground with all the the victims of sexual abuse coming out with yeah. and singing. And yeah, that was yeah. such a yeah. huge moment. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Who could have been better? In the running for this were Lana Del Rey. Ew. I don't know. Her tone could work for Bond. Ew. Rihanna. Okay. Yeah. Sia. Okay. And Ed Sheeran. Man. Who could write a good Bond song if he really wanted to? Uh, I mean, I just don't like Ed Sheeran, so I'm going to say no. But, <laughs> I mean, but factually, probably do all right. Agreed, agreed on Ed, Ed Sheeran, I'm like, they could do a good job. And Rihanna was rumored to be making a cameo in the film. Interesting. But the one that is legit and got made, mm-hmm. but didn't get chosen, Radiohead, <gasps> in 2015, wrote a song called Spectre for the film. It was not chosen by the producers, but the band officially released it in Christmas 2015. And it is a bit shorter than the final title sequence, but does have some direct lineups to it. If you play Radiohead's song over the opening credits, the phrase, I'm a ghost, is sung by Tom York right before the title appears on screen. Interesting. That is. I still haven't listened to it, and like, I'm, I love that band. They can do no wrong. And I remember hearing that and I was like, okay, okay. Not going to be upset that this band didn't get to do a James Bond theme. That's, a, that's cool. Now yeah. I, yeah, I'm going to have to go listen to that now. That was, that was a big deal because the band, the band was the one who actually said it. It was like, so, you know, a few months back we wrote something for a little movie and didn't get chosen. So now we're just going to give it to you. Oh, okay. That's cool. <laughs> I don't always let them do that. All right. Trivia. trivia. And there's a lot. Of course there is. A little bit of history about Spectre. From the Fleming novels, which gives a little taste to where they came up with some of these ideas. Mm-hmm. Fleming came up with the idea to replace Bond's Soviet enemies in the 60s with Spectre. Because he was looking at things thinking the Cold War might be ending pretty soon. Especially mm-hmm. with detente going on at that time. So he wanted an evergreen enemy for the novels. Spectre originally included 21 people, including former Gestapo members, Soviet Smirsch, Josip Broz Tito's secret police from Yugoslavia, and Italian, Corsican, and Turkish organized crime gangs. And in fact, in the original Thunderball in the movie, Spectre wasn't going to be included. It was going to be Italian mafia. 
But instead, they decided to include Spectre in the run of films. And so they brought that mafia connection back in this film. Okay. Part of that was being in the location, I think, helped them decide that. Mm -hmm. But that's why the mafia, like the mafia, the mafia are security for this group. Okay. That tells you how scary they are. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I like it. Spectre was intended to build world domination by playing both sides of conflicts Mm -hmm. and getting the two groups to fight against each other. And the octopus design symbolizes the organization's tentacular reach into the murkiest depths of world crime. I like it. Mm-hmm. Good symbolism. Yep. This is the first Bond film since Die Another Day to feature the gun barrel sequence at the very beginning of the movie. We've had it in different spots in the Daniel Craig movies. We had it at the end in Skyfall. We had it just after the opening scene in Casino Royale. But it's the first time, finally, at the very beginning, we have the gun barrel into the movie. When Bond enters Mr. White's chalet in Austria, two ravens fly out. This is a nod to Odin's crows, Hugen and Munin from Norse mythology. Yeah, I thought that. I promise I did. Because <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, I, the, they, they were flying at the, at the camera too much to not be significant of something. And I was like, yep. I don't know. The only thing I know ravens from is football and Odin. So... <laughs> And it wasn't going to be football. Come on. I don't even know that. <laughs> Killing Mr. White by thallium poisoning, as has been done in real life and possibly was inspired by the real life poisoning of former spy Alexander Litvitenko in the early 2000s, is now a strange choice to poison someone because pharmaceutical grade Prussian blue absorbs thallium and acts as an antidote. Interesting. Bond's new car was the Aston Martin DB10. Okay. Only 10 of these cars were ever made, and they were all made for the production of this film. It was the most exclusive Aston Martin ever produced. Aston Martin redesigned the entire car with angular features, but also sweeping curves to suggest the original DB5 from Goldfinger. Hinks's Jaguar CX75 was also a prototype, making this the first time two prototype cars were ever used in a Bond film. The gadgets in Bond's car were labeled with a Dymo labeler, which is a nod to the original adhesive labels in the DB5 and Goldfinger. (laughs) The total cost of the destroyed Aston Martins in this movie is close to $36 million. Oh my goodness. It's almost one Daniel Craig. (laughs) I know. It is one Daniel Craig. Q was not kidding when he said that car cost $3 million. Like... I think that's the actual cost of that vehicle. Craig admitted to crashing three or four of them himself. And the question was, were those part of the original 10? Aston Martin said, yes, they were. But they did not say if they were going to repair them and sell them as part of the limited editions. Because of their rarity, they each would sell for at least a million dollars at auction. Wow. Yeah. Well, and then you add to it that they were used in a movie. Yeah. Their value goes, <laughs> probably probably had Daniel Craig's butt in the seat. Yeah. Oof, that's that's a selling point just uh, altogether. Prior to filming their sequences, nine Land Rover Discoveries with five customized Range Rover Sports, which were in total worth about a million dollars, were stolen from a parking lot where they were going to be used in the Alps. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The Rome car chase. Oh god. Now, you might think it's boring, but this was an ordeal. Sure it was. In the best way. They wound up scouting tons of different roads for various stunts. Sure. 
because they filmed all of this at full speed in Rome. Oh my goodness. So that sequence, they are driving 100 miles an hour on the streets of Rome. This is dumb. Wow. So invariably what would happen is they would find a section of road and they were like, that's great for this part. And then they'd find a matching set of road that they thought, okay, let's use this to counterpart it. But they couldn't get permission for the second part of road. (laughs) So they had to keep jumping around Rome to be like, how can we piece it together to where it looks continuous and they'll let us film there? They had to crisscross all over the place to get the location right. But they were still able to shut down major parts of the city, including a part that sits right next to the Tiber River and across St. Peter's Square in the Colosseum. Like, you see it in that car chase. It's gorgeous, but this is so dumb. That's where all the money went. There was no room for error when they were driving. They were moving at 100 miles an hour. The performance had to be perfect because they didn't want to injure the drivers and they didn't want to cause damage to buildings that were at least a millennia old. Like, we were talking thousands of years of ancient history that if they ran into anything, they could damage it. This is so dumb. This is the Wow, that is... (laughs) I mean, for for a lackluster yeah. car chase, too. I mean... For something we don't even care about. Yeah. I don't know. Personally, knowing this before I watched it, I was like, this is fucking awesome. No. But it's something you had to know to see it, to care about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it is cool that, that they did it, you know, at actual speed and I guess the coordination of it all. I just wish it had been a little more exciting, like, <laughs> on its own. There was a rumor... That because Fiat had signed as an advertiser for this film, the Rome chase was going to be completed with Fiat 500s. Oh, fuck no. Instead, we get a Bond stuck behind a Fiat 500, which is adorable. Yes. The rumor may have been planted by the production to hide the fact that they were going to use these prototypes. That's fair. This is only the third time that we see Bond's home after Dr. No and Live and Let Die. Yeah, we see his apartment i know broccoli said that at the beginning of pre-production bond's apartment was going to be one of the most difficult sets to get right and set designer dennis gassner and daniel craig got through all of the details for it craig personally selected many of the items that were in the home i believe that yeah yeah and like that's the thing about it is you walk in and you're like well this feels like a dump a guy who didn't furnish anything because he's never in a home but at the same time you had to very carefully make it look that way. Well, it just means that what's in that home is very specific. Mm-hmm. Like nothing in that house is cheap and anything that is cheap is very sentimental. Like the Royal Dalton Bulldog that's sitting on his table <laughs> that he got at the end of Skyfall. Yes. For the helicopters over the Thames River sequence. Mm-hmm. They had to send out 11,000 letters to residents and businesses in the fly zone. And that wasn't the most major part of this. Lighting, that scene, was the most massive effort required. Per their supervising locations manager, Emma Pill, quote, we lit under each arch of Vauxhall, Lambeth, and Westminster Bridge, 17 arches in total. They had to set up for that sequence for five weeks. They lit from 10 different rooftops along the Thames, coordinating with the bridge authorities, Lambeth Palace, Tate Britain, and the Royal Parks. And they also had to work with the House of Commons, County Hall, and the London Eye to determine what lights could be on or off at a given time and what colors could be used so they could get the lighting correct. Each shoot required 200 personnel of marshal security, traffic guards, and police. 
And there were numerous events going on in London at the time, including the general election of the country, the state opening of parliament and three weeks of trooping the color. Pill said, quote, that's a lot of radios to hand out and coordinate on a night, but it ran extremely smooth each time. Damn. They pulled it off. That that makes my stage manager heart hurt. I know. (laughs) I'm proud of them, but also it hurts. That's the scene for me that I was like, that's so much effort. And the sequence you filmed does not feel like anything. Like, where the fuck is everyone in the middle of London? They're sleeping. Even if it's like 2 a.m. Like, where the fuck is everybody? They're sleeping. Hey, there was something about that scene that it was like, there's too few people for this to feel real. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I see that. And we already did a chase in the Thames, in The World Is Thought Enough, and it was fucking great. It was very cool. They had a weird boat thing. They did have a weird boat. It was it was Q's hunting boat. It was Q's hunting boat. It was Q's fishing boat. It was his retirement. It was his retirement boat. James just wrecks it. The climax was filmed on site at Westminster Bridge and on a Pinewood replica of the bridge. The Pinewood details they were able to keep secret, but they wanted to avoid revealing Waltz and his scar on location because they didn't want anybody to know that he was going to be playing Blofeld. Mm. So when they shot that scene, Waltz shot it with trackers on his face Mm. to avoid special makeup for the injuries and hide the appearance from outside cameras of the paparazzi. Oh, fair. Then they later added the facial injuries with CGI in post-production. I respect that. Like, I don't, I don't love it when they use CGI for stuff like that. But when you have to shoot in a place that's super public, yeah, sure. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm like for secrets, I, I allow it. Yeah. The explosion from the end of the film mm-hmm. was awarded a Guinness World Record for the largest stunt explosion of all time. Cool. Oh wow! I think this is the explosion at the crater base. Oh, okay. Not the demolition of the building. That was all CGI. But the explosion of the crater base was a full-on real explosion. It lasted 7.5 seconds, took 73 pounds of powder and 2,224 gallons of kerosene. That is the equivalent of 75 tons of TNT. In Fleming's stories, particularly the story Octopussy, Franz Oberhauser's father, Hannes Oberhauser, was a skiing climbing instructor that mentored Father Bond in college at Scotland. That whole plot element is from the novels. Yay! So that is a tie-in back to Fleming stories. Mm -hmm. The sign at Bond's safe house in England is called Hildebrand and Company, Rarities and Antiques, a reference to Fleming's short story collection that has been considered but never used for a title, the Hildebrand rarity. Okay. So when I was rewatching, because we've previously talked about like, oh, what titles are left and how are they going to use that? And like Hildebrand rarity, what the fuck? And when I watched this and I saw that on the door, I was like, oh, now it's teed up. That's going to be the safe house. Now it's teed up to be used in a future movie. Well, fun fact, the Hildebrand rarity is a bird. Okay. But now it's been used as a location. Yeah, I know. It's just, the safe house. Just throwing it out there. Shut up. I just made it great. <laughs> Throw my coosh ball at you. <laughs> Solve the Bond problem, David. The costumes for the Bond ladies, I'm going to use Mendez's <laughs> term, were inspired by 50s movie stars. Seydoux's clothes were inspired by Grace Kelly, and Bellucci's were taken from Sophia Loren and Gina Lollobrigida. While filming in the Moroccan desert, the production had to contact everyone within a 20-mile radius that the loud explosions would be happening. 
they met with some of the nomadic groups and villages to discuss the issue and wound up hiring a number of the nomads as guides and security during filming. Oh, nice. This is only the second Bond film where the villain is apprehended and pending arrest, not killed. What was the other one? The Living Daylights. Despite being a rogue agent in this film, Bond actually has more assistance from MI6 than in any previous film. I told you, it's the 18 this time. <laughs> MQ, Tanner, and Money Penny all actively assist him in carrying out the mission. And I love it. It's great. <laughs> it's just funny that it's like one of the few times that they've been like, Bond's not officially in double O right now. And then it's like, everybody's helping him. <laughs> because they need to help. Spectre was almost a Bond movie in the past. And now, can't we get back into the wonderful and long-running saga of Mr. Kevin McClory? Oh, Jesus Christ. So, uh, we've talked about Kevin McClory before. Kevin McClory had screenwriting credit on Thunderball when he didn't actually write any of that movie because it turns out, back in the day, he worked with Jack Winningham and Ian Fleming himself on script treatments for different Bond movies before Dr. No ever got made. One of those movies was called Spectre. Now, they developed all of this before the film rights had been taken over, and then Fleming used elements from those scripts for his novel, Thunderball. So when Eon made Thunderball, Kevin McClory sued them, and until 2014, held the rights to use Spectre in a Bond film. Like, he won against them initially, and every time they tried to get the rights, he refused to give it to them. In fact, wow. that is how the non-sanctioned Never Say Never Again, starring Sean Connery in his 50s, returning as James Bond, that is not a part of the canon, got made. Kevin McClory said, I'm going to make my own Bond movie, and I'm going to get Sean Connery to be in it. Yep. And he got <laughs> oh it goodness. made. It's actually pretty good. It's not bad. <laughs> wow. That's a whole... A whole side of this Bond saga I had no idea about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This man ha held on till his dying breath. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, he wouldn't give it away. It took him dying for them finally to settle with the estate to get the rights back to Spectre. Yep. Wow. That's why Quantum became their main enemy, because they couldn't use Spectre. The other side of this is a press conference was announced after Never Say Never Again because he planned to make more movies. Mm -hmm. And they announced the title of the next movie after Never Say Never Again. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be Spectre. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yep. We can finally end the Kevin McClory saga, Diana. Thank God. <laughs> With the last Bond film we're going to watch for a while. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I'm glad I was here for the end of it. One of the sets of eyes in the opening credits of this film, when we see all those different eyes looking at James, mm -hmm. is of actress Karen Gillan. Okay. At one point, Gillan had expressed interest in playing a Bond villain, oh. which Ooh. would be so cool. That would be cool. Yeah, I would love that. I would love a, a younger lady villain. And her quote, she wanted to do that because she wanted to lick Daniel Craig's head. That sounds like something she would say. Yeah. She's a little <laughs> bit off, but in the best in way. In the best way. In the best way. As an on-set joke, a prescription for Viagra was put in the set of the clinic at the top of the mountain for James. This was possibly a response to a British medical journal study where doctors tracked Bond's alcohol consumption to 92 drinks a week. That's a bit much. That would classify yeah. him as an alcoholic. Well, I was about to say that feels like <laughs> me in quarantine, but... <laughs> He would be at high risk for liver disease and impotence. You know, whatever. 
And finally, to commemorate the first day of filming in Obertillich, Austria, a farmer named two calves born on that day, on the first day of shooting, Leah and Daniel. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> oh, cute. Just little farmers doing stuff out in the middle of Austria, you know. I thought you said the farmer's name was two calves, and I was like, that's a great name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he, he named two little baby cows. Leia and Daniel after the two stars. That's cute. And that brings us to our rating system. So, Kent, for each movie, we create its own unique rating system. We go from one to five of whatever that rating system is with half points in between. What is going to be our rating system for this movie? Is it going to be octopus rings? It's got to be octopus rings, right? I feel like it should be octopus rings. There's there's nothing else as iconic as Lady Butt Chair, so I think it should be octopus ring. I'll go first this time. Okay. I'm going to go three and a half. Okay. It drags for me. It drags for me, and there's a lot of exposition in it that I just don't feel like is necessary. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a really solid movie. I would mm-hmm. give it a four if it moved a little better, mm-hmm. but like editing-wise, story-wise, it's just trying to do so much mm-hmm. that hurts what's really great about it. It, it's just in the, like that second level of Bond movies for me. It's still really good, but it doesn't rise up to the top levels of this franchise. I'm going to go with four. Cool. Because it needs to lose about 30 minutes. So editing is a problem, but I like the story. And I think as a send off for an actor, it's great. I think it shows growth. I love the, the Bond squad that we get. I love seeing the rest of them working together to assist I really want more of that. I feel like we're going to get a lot more of that in some new parts of the MI6 organization in No Time to Die, which I'm looking forward to a lot. And I just, I like that element. I like that we're not ignoring the fact that he's aged and like, he's tired. He's done. He need, like, mommy, mommy M died and he's avenged her. So now he's ready to be done. That's okay. So I really like it. It's not as good as Casino Royale. <laughs> or Skyfall. So it's it's a four for me. Kent, how many octopus rings are you going to give this movie? For me, it's mostly a standalone movie because though I've seen the other Craig movies, I don't remember much about them. So it's judging it as just a standalone movie. And for me, it's a three, three octopus rings. Right. So not quite the full fist, but you know. <laughs> But uh, it, but but it is because of that because it, it it is slow and I think I think it felt slower to me is because obviously some of these points of this movie were important because stuff before it mm-hmm. you know was was informing that scene and it just missed me so the some of these slower points were just a, a tad slower for me because I wasn't picking up the connections and connections to older movies and stuff that you all have from watching everything and being really keyed into the, to the franchise as a whole. So just kind of as a standalone movie, I mean, it's a three, which is good. I mean, you know, it's better than average. Well, that's, that's bond. It's bond. 24 movies. You've watched 24 movies in a mm-hmm. series. Bless you all for that. Still a lot of movies. So many fucking stinkers in there too. I'm just happy, and you know, I watched this movie in one sitting, which is a rare thing for me. Yeah, especially when they get over, like, whenever we see a film that's like an hour and a half, it's like, oh, I can do this in one sitting. Kent, thank you so much for appearing on this 24th Bond film with us. If people wanted to find more Kent on the wide world of the interwebs, where could they find you? Um, if you want to find more of me, you can find me at that guy Kent Blue on Twitter. Uh, I also run the at Roto Play Pod Twitter account for the Roto Play Podcast. 
co-founder of the Rotoplade Network. You can find me on a lot of stuff there, rotoplanetwork.com. I think that about covers it. Yeah, Woo-hoo. that's most of my internet livings. We're pretty big fans of Roll to Play. Yeah, Kent's one of the GM extraordinaires over there. We <laughs> play games with them from time to time. You happen cool. to have a show on Roll to Play? <laughs> hang on over there from time to time. <laughs> a lot, pretty much, every week. It's pretty awesome. It's good stuff. Well, it's good people. We are all glad that you hang out with us and we get to hang out with you all. It's the best. It's a happy family over there. We love it's it. very good. We love it. All right. Well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.